right, we are back. We hope you enjoyed that talk with Lee McIntyre in our first segment as much as we did. That's some important stuff, and we certainly hope we can thwart the efforts of those who would destroy our democracy. And when we say that, we we have to admit that our our democracy is, uh, shall we say, somewhat imperfect. And as Lee McIntyre freely admits in the book, he was heavily influenced by Timothy Snyder's also small and compact volume titled On Tyranny. Timothy Snyder is someone we certainly need to look at uh, bringing on to this program, if he will have us, and, and I think he will. We're going to make a concerted effort in this second half of the program to not talk about you-know-who, except, since we can't really avoid it, to mention the fact that a lot of competent legal scholars are pointing out that Trump has already been disqualified to run for president again by our nation's 14th Amendment. Law professors William Bowd of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Paulson at the University of St. Thomas have argued in a Law Review article that Trump's attempted coup d'etat automatically disqualifies him under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which bars anyone from elected office who, quote, has engaged in or, quote, given aid or comfort to, end quote, to an, quote, insurrection or rebellion, unquote. These scholars say that every official, state or federal, who oversees elections has the authority to bar Trump from the ballot. And it might be noted that Bowden-Paulson are not Biden-loving partisans. That was pointed out by Matt Ford in the New Republic. They belong to the Federalist Society, the powerful right-wing organization that helped stock the Supreme Court with conservatives. And that's all we're going to say today. Since we've been rather necessarily heavy in the first segment, we're going to... Uh, we're going to aim for a more lighthearted approach in this segment and, and go to our archives for some items that uh, may prove worthy of interest. Before we do that, though, I think we just can't resist doing one of our favorite features of every program, which is, of course, Mr. Millen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's items, we will be relying upon The Week magazine, whose Good Week 4 and Bad Week 4 sections is a, a natural fit for what we do. Note of The Week magazine, last week it was probably a good week for revisionism, with the news that some Trumpified evangelists are now, if you can believe this, rejecting the teachings of Jesus as weak. Russell Moore, former head of the Southern Baptist Convention, told NPR Multiple pastors, he said, have reported that congregants have objected to their preaching. Yeah, that's Sermon on the Mount stuff. Christ's Sermon on the Mount saying, love your enemies, is a liberal talking point that doesn't work anymore, say the objectors. And the current edition of the magazine points out that it was a bad week uh, last week for the poor, who apparently are not eligible to enter heaven, lest, at least according to the Catholic Archbishop of Kampala, Uganda. Archbishop Paul Sesamongeri says, We have misunderstood the gospel, warning that those who die poor despite their God-given talents will perish in hell. Yes, thank you for the Squirrel Nut Zippers contribution, Mr. McMillan. And I guess I guess the, the Archbishop has never really 
study too closely that phrase in the Bible about the rich man getting into heaven and the camel, the eye of the needle, all that. Which we, we do have to point out is has never been a particularly popular phrase emanating from the Bible. And wouldn't you know it, of late it's been an ugly week, well, more than one ugly week for artificial intelligence. We have this item from Dateline Canada. Microsoft Travel published an AI-written article which listed the Ottawa Food Bank, which provides free meals to the needy, as an attraction hungry visitors shouldn't miss while visiting Ottawa. And it gets worse. Dateline New Zealand, an AI-powered meal bot, I guess hired by some New Zealand supermarket, suggested a recipe for, quote, an aromatic water mix, unquote, that would, if the directions were followed, produce deadly chlorine gas. The oblivious bot suggested serving the beverage chilled and enjoying the refreshing fragrance. Yes, who doesn't enjoy that refreshing fragrance of chlorine gas? And in a final item that we have to consider a bad week for uh, electioneering, but a good week for dispensing with pretense, there's the news that a Kremlin spokesperson said last week that while a presidential election is scheduled for next year in Russia, it would involve, quote, costly bureaucracy, unquote, and could, quote, theoretically be canceled because it's already obvious that Vladimir Putin will be elected, unquote. Well, we have to agree there probably isn't a whole lot of doubt about that. And by the way, if you have not seen what Mr. Miller just aired, which is Vladimir Putin singing the Russian, Russian national anthem, we certainly encourage you to find it on YouTube. All right, let's jump into our archives. We have files and files and files of material that in some cases did not make the cut for being aired on this program, although in a surprising amount of cases it did. But of course, if you weren't listening back in 2003, dear listener, you might have missed some of these. Or, or in the years to follow. I have an item right now from August of 2006, which I think is worthy of a bit of mentioning. The word is here that in a small corner of Harney County, Oregon, you, you'll find a secluded meadow on a map that looks uh, pretty unremarkable, but its name tells a different story. Whorehouse Meadow is where in earlier times, mobile madams set up their tents to ply their trade to shepherds out in their fields. The name stuck until the map of the area was issued in 1968, in which the field was at that point renamed Naughty Girl Meadow. And we're pleased to note that this sanitation of the area's colorful history provoked an outcry, and the case was taken before the U.S. Federal Board responsible for geographic names. And in 1976, justice triumphed, and Whorehouse Meadow was restored as its official name. In another item related to uh, publishing, which may be more relevant now than ever, but also dates back to 2006, we have the fact that, and this also comes from New Scientist magazine, like the last item, it turns out that uh, the Steinlouse, or Stonelouse in English, is a rodent-like mite, according to the German medical dictionary Preschembel. It can be used to break down bladder, gallbladder, and kidney stones. 
I think I think we're quoting in that. It said that research into its uses has progressed rapidly since it was first listed in 1983, and homeopaths have adopted it as a remedy, which causes people to stop and go, what are you, what are you talking about, a rodent-like mite? Which sounds pretty unlikely. That's eh, because the Steinlaus doesn't really exist in the real world. Question is, why would compilers of a dictionary, which I guess is what this was, deliberately include a false entry? Well, the Steinlaus may be an in-joke, but it also serves the function of protecting copyrights. Dictionary editors face a problem protecting their own work. They invest hugely in compiling lists of facts, which are then easily copied, especially from digital editions. Calling ChatGPT, it's noted that copyright does not apply to facts, only the way they are expressed or assembled. And a fictitious entry is a perfect way to detect large-scale unauthorized copying, of such a collection. If it turns up in somebody else's dictionary, that's strong evidence of plagiarism. We need to return to this topic in, in, uh, in 2023. And what better time for a brief mention than right now in 2023? Writing in Gizmodo, Kevin Hurler noted that the first book about the Maui wildfires hit Amazon last week as researchers were still combing through the wreckage. It's a slim 86-page self-published volume, Fire and Fury is its title. It briefly jumped to number one in Amazon's environmental science category. Problem is, the evidence is that the book was simply churned out by a machine. It's credited to a mysterious Dr. Miles Stones, whose Amazon bio reads, I'd rather not say... This has evidently led some to conclude, uh, perhaps, that these fires in, uh, in Lahaina were a little more uh, suspicious than has been generally reported in the news. I spoke to a real estate agent from Southern California about this who just said, oh, all those places that, uh, that burned down, uh, people have been trying to buy those for years but couldn't do so. But now they might be able to get them at a, well, literally fire sale price. But that's a topic for another day. We're talking about AI here, and... Um, while we don't like to quote from the Wall Street Journal, while we can avoid it, we have to say that uh, they're noting that the proliferation of AI-written content in books and on the Internet is becoming a problem for the companies themselves. Here's why. AI models like ChatGPT are trained on public databases. As those databases are filled with low-quality AI content, large learning models digest data that they have created, and it becomes less useful. If the flood of AI-generated clutter doesn't abate, future AIs trained on this material will ultimately spiral into gibberish. That last quote comes from Myla Jankowitz in Business Insider. Over generations of training, errors are repeated and multiplied in what the University of Cambridge's Ross Anderson calls model collapse. Anderson believes this process is already underway. We've already strewn the oceans with plastic trash and filled the atmosphere with carbon dioxide, Anderson writes in a recent study, and now we're filling the internet with blah. We kind of can see how that once ChatGPT got a hold of the Steinlaus, it might become uh, mainstream uh, data. All right, in a lighter note, uh, I have an item here from the Radar 100, uh, date indeterminate. About 100 ways, uh, the magazine says, they're trying to go green. Now, we've been somewhat cynical in this program over the years with, I'm sad to say, good reason over the lack of progress we seem to be making in taking on the real problem of global warming. And I must say, back when Mr. Miller and I started doing radio back in the year 2000, we were perhaps more appalled than most people to see the theft of the national election by two oil men named Bush and Cheney, in particular because the guy that got 
the election stolen from him, Al Gore was probably the leading proponent of addressing the issue of global warming in the U.S. government. But uh, sad as that may be, and, and it is very sad, we, we have to just have a laugh at what, uh, what Radar proposed they do to keep things green. Suffice it to say that Mr. Miller and I uh, have mixed reactions to some of these suggestions. Like this one. Instead of owning a TV, you watch your neighbor's TV through a telescope. Radar suggests that you can decrease junk mail by living under a bridge, and that's certainly probably true. The magazine also suggests that we may want to consider cutting down on our own personal greenhouse gas emissions by a more liberal use of Beano. Here's what it is hard to argue with. Using the bat signal only when absolutely necessary. We also can't fault less grocery shopping, more bow hunting. Yeah, but here, here's one we really can't endorse. Forgoing paper napkins and instead just wiping your hands on your pants. <laughs> Radar suggests instead of broiling a steak, you wrap it in a warm scarf, but we're not sure that's going to work. And we can't fault this one. No longer using the 18-wheeler to run simple errands. Here's one we also have some doubts about. When using a ride service, insist the driver turn off their headlights. Some of these are just common sense. You could post a book review on Amazon instead of tossing thousands of leaflets out of your car window. And here's one we definitely don't endorse. Bypassing wasteful containers and insisting the Frappuccino be pumped directly into your mouth. And final suggestion from Radar Magazine on ways to be more green. Spending whatever it takes to make the foot-powered Flintstones car a reality. Here's another item we reported on back in 2006 that I think deserves another look, which is that you, you really don't need to fear the quicksand. Now, if you're like me and you grew up watching Tarzan movies on television, you would occasionally see the, how the people falling afoul of the quicksand, stepping into it and just disappearing right up to their pith helmets, which, by the way, made for some pretty good Gary Larson cartoons along the way. But Discover Magazine back in, in that year, 2006, took a look at, at quicksand. Uh, they noted that while visiting Iran, physicist Daniel Bond was told by locals that camels had been swallowed whole in a nearby field of quicksand. He wondered, is it really that deadly? So he took some home and began experimenting with it. Now, quicksand is a real thing. If you have water under pressure coming up underground, it can sometimes move apart the sand grains or the clay. Uh, the salt, etc., that uh, you might find in Iran or elsewhere. And while, it look, and while it might look like fairly solid ground, yes, you step into it and you're basically, you know, in sandy water. Now, unlike the Tarzan movies, this does not mean that it will continue to suck you down until you disappear. So as a public service announcement, we, we, we inform you, dear listener, that if you do find yourself in quicksand, don't panic, just... Attempt to simply float atop the briny mud. Though you might be quite stuck at first, if you continue to work your feet back and forth, you should be able to come undone and find yourself basically floating on the surface in some pretty nasty muck, but floating nonetheless. Now, if you enjoy kayaking and and are considering kayaking out in San Francisco Bay, you will note that many of the local charts will point out to you that if you kayak into very shallow muck and the tide goes out, don't try to walk to shore. 
You probably won't die. You probably won't drown. But you'll be sorry you tried it. Trust me. So what do you do? You just wait till the tide comes up? I'm afraid that's the safest solution, yes. I'm walking. Don't say you weren't warned. Now, one delightful aspect of summer that I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to report is the return of the familiar sound of crickets. Out in my front yard on what is now an August night, you can, you can hear numerous of these insects happily, I presume happily, chirping away. So you might be shocked to learn, as we were shocked back in 2007, to, uh, to go to com to check out whether the cricket thermometer is a real thing. The claim, of course, is made that outdoor temperatures can be determined by counting the chirps made by a cricket. Snopes judged it true. We do have some doubts about this because there are various formulas suggested for deriving the temperature by counting the number of chirps in X amount of seconds. The Old Farmer's Almanac, for example, says that to convert cricket chirps to degrees Fahrenheit, you count the number of chirps in 14 seconds and then add 40. But meanwhile, Dr. Peggy Lamont of the GLOBE program, which is a science education program funded by NASA, studied this theory uh, at her home in Boulder, Colorado, and concluded that if you count the chirps during a 15-second span and then add 37, the resultant figure did closely approximate the actual air temperature. She then claimed when she slightly adjusted her formula and recorded chirp counts in 13-second intervals, then added 40, the results were even better. We suggest, dear listener, that you do us a favor and yourself a favor in testing this out. All you'll need is a thermometer and a good set of ears and, uh, well, something to time with. But uh, those are readily available. Now, Mr. Brown does point out the fact that when you're listening to crickets at night, uh, they're not all chirping away at the same rate. So how can they? Well, there could be different temperatures where each cricket was chirping, I guess. I guess. We've always been a little bit skeptical of this, but we will at least plan to conduct an experiment here with, <laughs> with the crickets in the yard and seeing what we can come up with. Submit another bit of do-it-yourself science. This one goes back to a 2004 article in New Scientist magazine. Is over whether during an eclipse there will be a change in the motion of a pendulum. Yeah, I know it sounds really wacky and probably is. We're pretty skeptical about this one, but we do note that there have been many observations over the years that seem to so, show something screwy when um, you've got a pendulum swinging and an eclipse is taking place. We do have a feeling that observer error may play a prominent role in, uh, in this phenomenon. Or perhaps wishful thinking. A friend of mine asked me some years back about whether I knew about how you could, you could balance an egg on one end during the equinox which I thought was about the wackiest thing I'd heard. But apparently one of the ladies' magazines, uh, Ladies' Home Journal or something, published a piece many years back making this claim that on that day of the year you could balance an egg. Scientific evidence has since disproved this because you can balance an egg if you're patient enough any day of the year. And, And yeah, every day of the year includes the equinox. And in a final item related to uh, geophysics and and pendulums, in in a manner of speaking, we have the answer to a hypothetical question that was posed in Scientific American some years back about what would happen if there was a hole that went all the way through the center of the Earth and came out the other end, and you jumped in. Now, in this theoretical construct, you have to basically ignore the rotation of the Earth. 
And you're going to have to do that because wherever you start in the servers, you're going to be going pretty fast. And as you drop down to the earth, you're going to be going a lot, the earth is going to be going a lot slower. So you're going to smash into the side of the tunnel. But ignoring that, if you had a big old sphere exactly the size of the earth and you bored a hole straight through the center of the earth and jumped in, the math says it would take you 42 minutes for the total trip. And yes, you would be acting as something like a pendulum. You'd start out going really fast. And when you got to the center of the earth, there'd be no gravity pulling on you at that point because everything would be above and around you. So you'd start decelerating and continue decelerating till you got up to where you started on the other end of this perforation. Anyway, the, the, whole, the whole thought problem is, is a bit silly, but I was puzzled by the fact that apparently it would take you 42 minutes no matter where you drilled a hole through the earth and went in one side and came out the other. That's because the trip wouldn't be as long but there'd be a diminished gravitational force while you were making that shorter journey. So I guess it would all balance out. I'm going to just trust the physicists on this one. Anyway, we hope to be going to our archives uh, more, more often in the, in the weeks and months to come. But let's close with a contemporary item. Apparently just days after California regulators agreed to expand driverless taxis in the city of San Francisco... A self-driving taxi tried to drive through a city paving project and got stuck in the wet concrete. Department of Public Works spokesman said, there's still a lot of work to do. Well, yeah. Photographs of the fiasco were taken by Paul Harvey, described as an amused resident, who's quoted as saying, it thinks it's a road because it ain't got a brain. And my head I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And a thanks to our guest, Lee McIntyre, whose book On Disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy is one we certainly can recommend to you. From listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. I could think of things I never thought before And then I'd sit and think some more I would not be just a nothing, my head all full of stuffin', my heart all full of pain. I would dance and be merry, life would be a ding a dairy if I only had a brain.